Well, last Sunday we had the privilege of having Tracy McKenzie preach to us, and his worship preparation included causing us to consider those times when we've had self-doubt, those times when we have wondered because of our own sin and inability to keep God's law, inability to obey Him, caused us to consider, does God love us? Does He look upon us with favor? In that same vein this morning, I want you to consider those moments when you're still and quiet and a deep sense of guilt or shame comes over you. And like Tracy said last week, if you never have those times, maybe you need to come and see the pastor for different problems, right? We all wrestle with, with guilt over our sins, over our lack of doing what we know we ought to do. And often guilt is associated with holidays. It could be guilt over relationships that have been broken and those, those, you're reminded of those during Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving. It could be because you spent too much money on Black Friday and you have this deep regret now in the new year about all these things you bought that you had no reason to buy. That, that reminds me too, I joked about, uh, before Thanksgiving, I joked, half joked about Black Friday being America's biggest holiday, right? And so Christmas would be our, our second greatest holiday. But I was con contemplating Thanksgiving and the holidays surrounding that. Think about the guilt involved in that space of time of about just five days around Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, you come together as a family and you all celebrate all the things you're grateful for, how God has blessed us so much and we're so thankful. And then Black Friday comes and you go and purchase everything that, uh, to replace all those things you were thankful for, apparently. And then you do it even more on Cyber Monday, right? That's the, that's the big online shopping day. And then what's next? Did you forget about what's next? Giving Tuesday, where we seek to atone for all that we did on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. I do think that that's that related. There's a sense in which our culture understands guilt. In fact, one secular fiction author wrote that he has a bad case of the 3 a.m. guilts. You know, when you lie in bed awake and replay all those things you didn't do right. So one of the reasons maybe we're all so busy is because we don't like those times of silent contemplation because we're reminded of our sin. The things that we have done that shouldn't, we shouldn't have done and the things we should have done that we failed to do. This morning we'll talk about guilt and we will talk about how Christmas rescues us from that guilt. How only Christ rescues us from that guilt. We'll actually consider also at Christmas, why did God give the Son a body? And how does His body work towards relieving us, clearing our consciences, cleansing our consciences, cleansing us from our sin? It's all wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
As we consider this, I want you to consider first of all in our text the powerlessness of the old covenant sacrifices. We could say the impotence of the old covenant sacrifices. They were powerless. They were insufficient. They were weak. They couldn't accomplish what they seemed to accomplish. You see, he says in in verse 1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. By their very nature, they're just shadows. These, he speaks of the law as a whole, the old covenant as a whole, but then he points particularly to the old covenant sacrifices. Throughout Hebrews, for the last four or five chapters, the author of Hebrews has been pointing out the insufficiency of, the impotence, the powerlessness of the Old Covenant and pointing us instead to something else which is powerful. By their very nature, these Old Covenant sacrifices, the temple rites, the priests, their service, they were simply shadows of the thing which was to come, of the true thing which was to come. So you think of what a shadow is. As the sun is shining on a person or a body, you see behind him just an outline, a vague outline of his shape, but there's no reality there. It's just a shadow of the true reality which it represents. And in the same way, these old covenant sacrifices were simply shadows. They could do nothing. He goes on, it can never, the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The powerlessness of the Old Covenant sacrifices are evidenced by their perpetual coming again and again, making these sacrifices year after year to be offered. Otherwise, he says, they would have not ceased to be offered. They would have stopped, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. We see their complete inability to make perfect those who seek to draw near to God. You could consider drawing near to God as one drawing near to the judge of all the earth or one drawing near to the almighty and holy God. I remember when I was in Philippines, they had a monument set up at the top of hundreds of steps. It's a, a, a Catholic, uh, they, they called it, it's, it's like a cave. At the top of the steps, you have Mother Mary and actually a little baby, Jesus as well. He had candles you could light. And each step going up, you were, had the sense of drawing nearer to this, this destination, drawing nearer to this one at the top where people were seeking peace and joy and comfort for their sins. I looked at some reviews of a similar site people had visited and they said those very things. I gained such peace from going up step by step and praying and pausing each step of the way as I got closer to the monument. And in a similar way, the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Covenant sacrifices were just like that, completely powerless to do anything completely powerless I, I get the sense from the author of hebrews language here that yes they had been given these instructions to carry out these sacrifices year after year they'd been given this from god and yet 
it was never able to wash away their consciences. It was never able to, to clear away their sins. It's almost as if they would go to the temple year after year, make these sacrifices of bulls and goats, and there was kind of a sense where I'm forgiven. And yet, deep in the recesses of their mind, they knew that it wasn't touching their hearts. They knew it wasn't working. It was still laid heavily upon their shoulders, upon their minds, that I still have sin and I cannot approach a holy God. And every one of us in our own human nature should feel that sense of guilt. That you cannot approach a holy God with your sins still upon you. And no matter how you try to cleanse your conscience, it doesn't work. How, how do you try to cleanse your own conscience? Unbeliever? Christian, how do you try to get rid of that weight upon you of sin? Knowing that one day you will face eternity. One day you will be on your deathbed. And the next step will be facing your maker. Sometimes we might deal with it by trying to ignore it. right? Just shove it deeper inside and I'll forget about it. Stay busy and I won't have to confront my sin. I won't have to think about standing before God. Or maybe you try to make up for it by the good things that you do. You give extra money to the church. Or you try to do good to those around you. Or you try to do better next time. You just let the guilt try to spur you on to doing better next time. You'll make up for it on your own. How do you try to soothe your own conscience when it comes to sin? I need to tell you, it will not work. It will not work. The author of Hebrews is not only telling us that all of the old covenant sacrifices were totally powerless, he, by implication, is telling us every attempt Every human attempt to try to soothe your conscience, clear your conscience from sin, is worthless. It is vain. It will not work. It won't get you what you desire. You ought to consider then those ways that you seek to do that and recognize their inability to give you what you are looking for. This is setting us up for the next verses. This is setting us up for desperation. You see these, these, the worthlessness of the old covenant sacrifices and your own attempts to get rid of sin and to clear your consciences, they remind you of the seriousness of the problem. They remind you of your desperation. They remind you of the desperation that we have as sinners trying to approach, trying to draw near to a holy God. It should cause us much fear and trembling to consider our great God. But this sets us up for what then? What, what do I do then if, not, if none of the old covenant sacrifices worked? If nothing I can do, if nothing I can t- attempt can ever clear my conscience, what, 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 will, what will we do? What is the answer? And he gives us an answer in verses 5 through 10. Though it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats in any human attempt to take away sins, there is one who came into the world. Consequently, he says in verse 5, when he came into the world, he said, 
And we know who the he is because he's been talking about Jesus for chapters already. He's been, he's been pointing us to the supremacy of Christ in all things and over all people and over all of the old covenant sacrifices and rites and ceremonies. When he came into the world, this is speaking of the advent of Christ, his coming into the world. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I say, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I want to have a little interaction with, with the children for a minute. So children, listen up and you can respond to me, okay? I'm going to ask you a question and then you tell me the answer. What is Christmas about? Anybody? Jesus? What about Jesus is it about? Jesus' birth, that's right. That is the perfect answer. What is Christmas about? It is about Jesus' birth. And, here's another question, who is Jesus? Jesus is, he's the son of Mary, but who else is he? He's the son of God, right? So Christmas is about Jesus' birth, but I want to tell you something. I want you to learn something from this point right here. When Jesus was born, it didn't mean he came into existence at that time. It means Jesus was alive before he was born. Can you believe that? Jesus was with God from all eternity, and then he came to the earth and God gave him a body. He was born, even though he had been alive all forever. From the beginning of time, the Son of God was alive, and we celebrate his birth at Christmas. God gave him a body, and that might make us wonder, why did God give him a body? Why did God give the Son a body? And the answer is, you could give a lot of answers to this, but for our purposes this morning, to take away our guilt. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God gave his Son a body in order to remove our guilt. Well, how do we get there? Jesus Christ says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is taken from the Greek version of the Old Testament. So if you go back to Psalm 40 in your Bible, it will say something a little different. It will say, ears you have hollowed out for me. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but ears you have dug out for me. In other words, you have given me ears to hear and a will to obey. You have allowed me to hear and understand you and to obey. You think about children when they're upset with you, maybe they might stick their, their fingers in their ears because they don't want to hear what you have to say and they don't really want to obey what you have to say. Well, here, the, the psalmist is picturing God as digging out these ears so that he can hear and respond in obedience. And in a similar way here, the author of Hebrews says, in contrast to these sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, you have given me a body. You have prepared for me a body. A body for what? We see in verse 7, I think, why the first reason he's given him a body. Behold, I have come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll 
of the book. Why has God given the Son a body? To obey His every command. To perfectly obey God's will. In other words, yes, sir, is better than I'm sorry. Right? Obedience from the first moment inside and outside is better than an apology. And so here Jesus does what no other human has done, could possibly do ever. He comes to fulfill the will of God perfectly. And this is why Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the sacrifices of bulls and goats. Bulls and goats, animal sacrifices, have never actually offered willing obedience to the Father. Now they do what they were created to do. They, they bleat, they, you know, they, they do whatever their human master tells them to do. And yet, they, they cannot offer a free will offering of obedience to the Lord. They can't, they can't please Him by their works. They are amoral. They, they can't make good choices. They can't make bad choices. They can't sin, but neither can they attain the righteousness of God. And so when Jesus comes, He, as a human, with a real human body, fulfills the will of God with perfect obedience. This is sometimes called the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Right? He does the things you should have done. He obeys God in all the ways you should have obeyed God, but failed to do. If we're going to be saved, if our guilty consciences are going to be cleaned, we need not only someone to pay for our sins, but to substitute for us the righteousness required by God. And Jesus has done that. We celebrate Christmas because God has given the Son a body in which he perfectly obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. But not only did God give the Son a body for perfect obedience, but also so that He would be offered as a perfect sacrifice for us. The author explains to us in verses 8 through 10 what Jesus' sacrifice actually does. Look at it. When He said above... So this is the author's comment quoting back what Jesus said. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burn offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. That's his comment. He wants us to remember these are a part of the old covenant of law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified that is made holy before God through the offering of the body, there's that word body again, of Jesus Christ once and for all. Why did God give the Son a body? To perfectly obey the Father's will for us and to offer a perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus' sacrifice for us is better than that of the animal sacrifices. First, because he offered a pure life to God in obedience, but second, he offers a perfect and pure sacrifice for sins. One of the reasons that the Old Testament people knew that something wasn't right with the animal sacrifices they made is because there's seemingly no connection between 
human sin and animal blood, animal death. Like, what's the connection there? They, have to, they had to have wondered, you know, how is this taking care of my sin? I committed sin as a human before God, and killing a, a goat or a bull, what connection? What did he do wrong that he would suffer for me? What connection is there between an animal and my sin? And yet when God gives the Son a body and He lives a life of perfect obedience, He is able to then offer back an appropriate, a fit sacrifice for human sin. By His righteousness, He did not deserve to die, and yet He willingly took the punishment for my sin. And He was able to pay it as the perfect human who had accomplished the righteousness of God, he was able to offer a sacrifice for sinful humans. So what can we make of this? Jesus living perfectly the life we should have lived and dying a sacrificial death, the death we should have died for our own sins. I think the author of Hebrew tells us he does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, he abolishes the first in order to hold up and establish to put into effect the second. What's the first? The law and the old covenant. He has totally done away with that as a way of drawing near to God in righteousness and instead he has established this, the perfect righteousness of Christ and his atoning sacrifice for sinners. Aren't you glad? In other words, it is finished, brothers and sisters. It is done once and for all. He has done what you couldn't have ever done, and it is enough for you. It is sufficient for you. It is over. Your work is done. There's, there's no more need for you to try to cleanse your own conscience by any of your, these, these means that you're trying to do. You can rest in the work of Jesus Christ, in His life and His death for you, you can rest in that knowing that before God you have been made holy. This is such good news. About a year ago, my car broke down and I had to try to figure out ways to make more money to, to try and pay for this, this new vehicle that we got. That's my white pickup truck outside. And so I took on a, a part-time job for just a time, and I was paying it off, and day after day I would go to that, that part-time job, and it got weary. I was like, I'm ready just to quit this and be done with it. And yet I knew that it, it had to continue. It had to keep up, at least until I was done. And then something happened that I wasn't expecting. You, brothers and sisters, church members, joined together, and you raised the money to pay it off in full. You presented me with that check, and I, I came to tears like I'm doing right now. <laughs> and I was thankful. Why was I thankful? One, because you expressed your love for me in such a, a kind and generous way. And two, it was done. It was finished. It had been paid for in full, and there was no more money I needed to put towards that. There was no more need for me to continue working to, to try and earn money for that. It had been completed in full. And if there's such joy over something like that, how much joy ought we to have knowing that Christ has paid our penalty in full? Forever, once and for all, Jesus has done it 
It is finished. So that means several things. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are clean before him. You are free in Christ. The New Year's coming up and you're about to make some New Year's resolutions probably. I have a couple of them too. And there's, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, go ahead. There's plenty of nuance I could give to this. But you might have resolutions to do better at your job, to be more productive, to lose some weight, to stop this bad habit, to take up this good habit. And I want to tell you, in Christ, you are free. You don't have to do any of that junk. You are absolutely free in Christ. Now, if you want to do it, do it. But just understand, you shouldn't feel guilt over that. You are free in Christ. The, the converse, though, the, the flip side of this is that we should be careful then, even more careful about attempting to soothe our own consciences. Because then you realize it's not just a, oops, I did it again. I was trying to soothe my own conscience. I was trying to, to make up for the bad things I have done. It's not just that which you're doing. What else are you doing? You're rejecting the work of Jesus Christ. It, just like it would be a regression, not progress, to go back to the old covenant sacrifices, that would be going backwards. That wouldn't be going forwards. It is to go backwards every time you attempt to please God by your own efforts. Rest in Christ. Rest in the work that He has done for you. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Christ in his body has done once and for all everything that is required to make us clean before God. We've seen then the powerlessness of the old covenant sacrifices, the power of Christ's sacrifice. And now just for a moment, consider the result of Christ's sacrifice. I won't spend much time on this, but it's found in the remaining verses 11 through 18. What is the result then of this sacrifice that Christ has made? We've already seen some of it in that our consciences have been cleaned completely. But see that in verse 12, Jesus, having made this sacrifice, has now sat down at the right hand of God. Contrary to those Old Testament priests who were constantly standing, having to do more, having to sacrifice more, Jesus is done, and he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He has defeated his enemies. He's just waiting for the, the finalization of that. He has defeated once and for all sin, he has defeated once and for all his enemies. And second, he has inaugurated a new covenant that replaces the old covenant. He has inaugurated, he has started a new covenant. He has begun a new covenant. As the author has already told us, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And what does this new covenant include? Verse 18, verse the end of verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There's been a change in the status of the relationship and God has put away your sins. 
Therefore, for you to dwell on them and think that you're not right with God is to contradict, contradict God himself. The new covenant includes forgiveness of sins. And also it includes, look at the, the quote in verses 15 and following. This is what Tracy preached on last week. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Here a, a few parts of that are included. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. The new covenant includes the law within your heart. And the reason he does that is because he puts the Spirit of God within you. So it's not only that our consciences are made clean, it's not only that we are forgiven of our own sins, it's that God has done a work in us to really change us, to actively change us from the inside out. That means the very Spirit that was in Jesus Christ that calls Him to perfectly obey the Heavenly Father, that same Spirit is inside of you, brothers and sisters. Isn't that mind-blowing? The same Spirit of God who calls Jesus to perfectly honor His father and mother, to perfectly say, yes, ma'am, every time His mother instructed Him, to perfectly obey the Father in His relationship to other people, His disciples, His enemies. That same Spirit that indwelt Jesus is inside of you and is working to put you in the place of obedience to God, to drive your obedience to God. I'll close with just this, this story of uh, kind of a, a, a recap of a section of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Have you ever heard of that tragedy by Shakespeare? Well, the, the long of the short of it is Macbeth and his wife Lady Macbeth conspired to kill King Duncan. And they carry out the deed, and because they've carried out that deed, they have to carry out other deeds. And Lady Macbeth says, a little bit of water will wash that away. It'll just wash that away. It'll, it'll soothe our consciences. We'll get what we really want, which is the throne. We will be lifted up and exalted, and we can just forget any of this ever happened. But like we see in other great literature, it's not that easy. The guilt remains with her to the point where she starts she starts sleepwalking at nights and as she sleepwalks she is rubbing her hands she's rubbing her hands trying to wash them in her dreams to get rid of the blood of king duncan and it's impossible to remove there's nothing that can get the stains away she she goes through it night after night and this dread comes over her because she can't get rid of the stains that are on her hands. And it's the same for you and me apart from the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot get rid of your stains. Only Jesus Christ, the work that he has done for us. But not only does he wash our hands, not only does he clean, cleanse us from the inside out, not only does he cleanse our minds and our consciences, he actually indwells us with his Holy Spirit so that now we may begin to walk in his ways. 
And you see, if you, if you want to see further application, you follow down in verse 19 and following. He says, therefore, and then he starts rattling off. Here's what this means then, brothers and sisters. We can draw near to him with full confidence. You can know that he loves you because of Jesus Christ, not because of anything that you have done or could do, but all because of Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. There's no need for you to waver, not because you're faithful, but because he who promised it is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we might encourage one another, strengthen one another, come alongside one another, helping us to trust and believe that Jesus has done everything that's required because he is coming back. Let us do this together until he returns, he says. Continue strengthening one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, this isn't just something for us to think about. It's not just something for our minds. It's something that moves us to obedience. This is is a freedom which doesn't free us to sin and do our own thing. This is a freedom which frees us then to serve our brothers and sisters, your unbelieving neighbors and co-workers. It frees you to begin living for the glory of God because of Jesus Christ. So for Christmas then, consider over the next weeks, what does this freedom give to you? What, is this, what does this do for you that you might lay down your life for others? Who might God be wanting you, stirring up in your heart to minister to, whether in this body, the church, or unbelievers who are in desperate need of having their guilty consciences cleansed? It won't happen for them without Christ. How might you serve them in love and point them to the only cure for their guilty conscience? Let's pray together.